Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts. Specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says Authenticity Guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion. Welcome to the BOF Podcast. It's Friday, February 16th. In the world of high fashion, few names have commanded as much attention and controversy as John Galliano. For almost two decades, Galliano's sensual designs and runway theatrics earned him worldwide acclaim. But his career imploded in 2011 when a video emerged of him using anti-Semitic slurs. This week on the BOF podcast, we go inside the highly anticipated documentary that fashion insiders have been talking about since last year. In High and Low, John Galliano, director Kevin McDonald examines the designer's meteoric rise, scandalous downfall, and the essential questions of forgiveness and redemption. Fashion is not notable for truth-telling, and I think this is a film which is trying to tell the truth. This is not a film that is going to give easy closure, but it is going to raise a lot of questions and I think demands a certain amount of, um, of independent thinking from the viewer. I hope you enjoyed this week's conversation where editor-at-large Tim Blanks sits down with McDonald to discuss the new film and examine the boundaries of cancel culture. Here's Kevin McDonald with Tim Blanks 
on the BOF podcast. Hello, this is Tim Blanks. Our podcast subject today is Kevin McDonald, who is just about to unleash his film of John Galliano on the world. It's called High and Low. And the title is a very interesting cross-reference in a way to the rest of Kevin's career, I think, because he has engaged himself with some singularly extreme subjects over the years in feature films and in documentaries, ranging from Idi Amin to Whitney Houston via Mick Jagger and stories about very extreme events in people's lives. But my obvious question for Kevin is... Hello, Kevin, first of all. <laughs> Hello, Tim. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Is why John Galliano? Basically because he's this fascinating character. He's one of a kind. And he's a brilliant man, a brilliant artist, who had this experience of cancellation because he had said some really offensive and horrible things in 12 years ago now, in 2011. So he's a man who's seen the highs and the lows in his own life in many respects. And I wanted to, I was interested in finding out more about him, what makes his brain work and what it feels like to have been through everything that he's been through. And he, of course, any film like this, everyone involved has an agenda. My agenda is to make a really interesting film that reflects some of my interests, but he obviously had an agenda. And his agenda, I think, was wanting people to understand him. He doesn't expect people to forgive he hopes people will forgive. He doesn't expect that. He knows some people will never forgive him for the anti-Semitic comments he made. But he wants people to understand who he is and where that came from and what part it had, what a limited part in the way it played in his life. I mentioned your earlier some of your earlier films, and I'm curious as to how or if Galliano fits into that broad spectrum of... of the stories you've told. I, I mean, it, it feels to me that there's a common ground in, in, in your work, and it seems to be obsession, that you're curious about obsessed people. I think the characters that I'm interested in, you know, I've been making films for almost 30 years, and you do find, you know, instead of looking back and trying to make sense of why were you interested in that character or that story. And I think a lot of the people are obsessed people because certainly the artists profiles I've made are obsessed people because all good artists are obsessed if they're not obsessed they're not interesting but I also think what they have in common is that they are often morally complex and have an element about them that the audience have to make their own mind up about and that people have different opinions on so for instance the last film I did I mean talk about a pivot the last film I did was about it's called The Mauritanian, it had Jodie Foster and Benedict Cumberbatch in it, and it was about a prisoner at Guantanamo Bay. And so from that to, to, to the world of high fashion is quite a big swing, but there is a similarity in a way. It's about how people judged this prisoner who was in Guantanamo, the expectations and the bigotry that people brought to bear on him and their attitudes towards him. And I think the same can be said maybe for, maybe for John. People come with expectations of what he's like or what he did or why he did it. And you're trying to do that most basic thing, which is to humanize and promote empathy, I suppose, through the film. And I, I suppose there's the idea also that obsession can fuel the rise of somebody, but it can also fuel the fall. I mean, even in, 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 in a film like Touching the Void about climbing, 
there's a literal rise and fall in, in, <laughs> in, in that. But I'm thinking of Whitney Houston, particularly. She was an incredibly successful documentary subject for you. The notion that what makes somebody successful can also be their undoing in the end. I think that's absolutely right. And I think that it's a kind of a, I wouldn't say a documentary cliche now, but it's a familiar template in documentaries and in fiction films, the, the kind of the artists rise and fall and usually through some form of arrogance, addiction, bad luck brings them down. And John, I mean, I would say a lot of time to my editor when we were cutting this is like, John's story conforms exactly to the Amy Winehouse or the Whitney Houston or whatever template, except in one very important feature, which is that there's a fourth act, an inconvenient fourth act that he didn't die. He survived and had to make amends for what he had done and had to try and figure out, oh my God, what did I do? What did I say? Why did I do it? Why did I say it? And he's tried to have a fourth act to his career as well. And very successfully, you know, everyone I speak to, even doesn't know anything about fashion, is suddenly saying to me, ooh, that guy John Galliani made a film. I've seen him on Twitter. I've seen him. There's this show that he's done that's been this phenomenon, this this, this whole viral phenomenon. So um, John conforms to that. And yet there's the inconvenient fourth act, which is what makes the film structurally, made it structurally difficult to make, actually, but also is the thing that makes it, I think, more interesting than most of those films are. There is that inconvenient coda of the show he put on in Paris two weeks ago, which was such a triumph. It's such a triumphant return to Galliano in full creative cry. <laughs> How did you feel when you when you saw the the reaction to that show? And 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 you know, it's it's more than a fabulous footnote. It felt like an incredible comeback in a way on on, on a number of levels. I think it is. I think I think it's very rare for people to make in the arts that kind of a comeback. But I mean, there are filmmakers I admire, Francis Coppola, say, who had his short periods, 10 years of making brilliant films and still looking for his comeback. And he hasn't had the downfall that John has had. But for someone to have had the downfall that John's had and then to come back and people to be telling me quite earnestly in the last few days, you know, this was the, John's recent show was the greatest show of the millennium so far. Things like that. That's like quite amazing, isn't it? And it's going to reset fashion and reset the way people think about fashion. So I'd like to think that maybe the documentary played a small part in somehow that for John, that he's sort of now through having spent so long talking to me and working on the film, thinking about his past, that maybe it's put him into a place where he's able to move forward without reference to the past. I absolutely agree with you on that because I felt while I was after the show, when I was processing how incredible it was, I wondered if the film had given him a kick in the ass to do John as John was, you know, John untroubled and untrammeled and so on. To remember his self, his real self. Exactly, exactly. I think that's possible. I mean, I think one of the things I certainly realised about working with John was that he is a sponge for influences and a sp and he responds all the time to what he's just seen, what he's just experienced. And that comes out in his shows, not necessarily as a conscious kind of thievery, but as a sort of, he's a sort of conduit for all these experiences and, and, and his fashion reflects that. And I wonder whether having kind of had the opportunity to in public explain himself and he could set everything aside and actually also, he got to see again his greatest work. Because, I mean, that's the amazing thing is that you say to John, 
did you have you seen any of these videos of these shows that you did in the 1980s? No, never seen them. Never saw them probably, you know, since the day that the collection was done. And I think seeing it again and remembering the response and the what he used to be, I think must be a very powerful stick to kind of prod you with. Do you think the film would have been different if you had seen that show he showed two weeks ago? Would it have changed the slant of it at all? I don't think it would have changed the film that much, but it might have changed the ending, which is obviously always a very important part of a film and what people take away and what they see as the meaning of the film. So if it had ended with an outright creative triumph and comeback, which it doesn't, it ends with a show which is fascinating and slightly weird and is very much a reflection of the process of making the film. And the show that we filmed that is the end of our documentary is a show that he did that is really about the process of making a documentary about himself. It's full of these references to the themes of the documentary and it's about making a film on stage about his life. And, you know, it's, it's a complex and maybe ambiguous ending in the film. I think if we'd ended with the show that has just been, which has received so much adoration and admiration, I think people would be left with a slightly different flavour. The film ends very reflectively, doesn't it? It ends with him sort of, is he staring out to sea or something? Well, it almost, but he's, he sort of runs away from the show. He runs away up the stairs, picking up on this theme of him, which recurs throughout it, of him, you know, always looking for ideas of escape and that his, really the central theme of his work is about escape, escape from the mundane, the painful, the traumatic into fantasy, the escape to fantasy. You frame the film with footage of Abel Gans's Napoleon and... Is it your grandfather's red shoes? Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, who was your maternal grandfather. Yeah. Their classic, The Red Shoes, which is also obviously about obsession too. So I thought that choice of framing was quite significant because I, there's a moment in the film where John gets a little bit, you know, like Napoleon, you know, why? Why Napoleon? You know, he, the, the, the bringing that up, it's like he's a little bit, put out by that. So I wondered why you chose those two elements to kind of frame his story. Because I think that they point to an important feature of John's work and I think his character, which is that he is obsessed with movies and the, and, and the feeling that they've given him from when he was a little boy of escapism and glamour. And I think if you look at his work and compare it to the movies that he loves, you'll see and direct lineage between those two things. So there is a filmic component to his work that I think maybe people don't talk about as very much. Then, more importantly, I think there is an obsession that John has with Napoleon, and he maybe doesn't want to acknowledge it always, although there's a coda to that conversation as well, I'll tell you about. But there's no doubt that if you look in a kind of where's Wally kind of way through the documentary, the number of times you see Napoleonic references in the background on his t-shirts in the costume that he chooses to wear as he walks down the runway I mean it's about 20 times I can tell you in there he is constantly referenced even in the shows the show that we filmed last year with him boys are wearing these hats which are clearly Napoleonic hats so you then have to ask why is he obsessed with it and obviously it's something it's a film that Abelgon's film is a beautiful film he saw it at a very formative time of his life but it's also, I think, because he relates to, he has the ego of a Napoleon, 
but maybe not the kind of ability to enact it in the world in the same reason Napoleon did. But he also has the sensitivity and the awareness of being a small Southern man who's seen as different and an outsider trying to conquer the world of Paris. And that's really, for me, what the parallel is, is here's someone who came from the South, who was not accepted, who spoke with a strange accent, which John did, was kind of bullied. If you see the film, he's bullied by people throwing snowballs at him, <laughs> Napoleon in the film, and who triumphs and approves everyone wrong and recreates the world in his own image. And I think what was interesting was that when I showed the film to John, I thought, oh God, he's going to hate all this Napoleon because we'd had this argument about it. And he came out and he said, he was crying. And I said to him, well, the film's almost finished. The only thing is we've got problems clearing the rights to the Napoleon footage. And I thought he would say, good, I don't want that in there. And he said, oh my God, what can I do to stop this? It's so fantastic. I love it. Don't remove a frame of it. We've got to do something to save this footage. <laughs> so I think, yeah, he's ambivalent even about that. It's as funny in the film that he resists the analogy, but obviously there's something so Napoleonic about that story. And then he, he did meet his Waterloo in a way. Two things are hugely timely about the film and that funny way that, that current events can sort of coincide with somebody's artistic impulses and, and suddenly you're making a, a comment that you probably didn't necessarily set out to make. I mean, one of them being cancel culture. This is a sort of prototypical moment of cancel culture, isn't it? What happened to him? Do you think it was fairly early in, in people setting things to rights? The whole process? Yes, I think, you know, that's the thing that originally made me want to do this film was I was, during the pandemic, reading all these stories about people being cancelled in my work, in the film world, and thinking about what happens to those people. And is this a new phenomenon or has existed previously this kind of censoriousness, this kind of willingness to sort of take people off the shelf and put them in a cupboard? with no sense of how are they going to get out of that cupboard? And is there a way to get out of that cupboard? Is there a way to sort of regain their former stature? So it was actually then that John came to mind as an example of that from, you know, the recent past. And that was why I contacted him, actually. But it, to me, it became the cancel culture element of it became sort of less important in a way because it, 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 the film took on its life of its own. It became really specifically about his character and about this question of how can you ever really know what goes on inside somebody else's mind and that we ourselves often don't even know what goes on in our own mind and why we say and do things. So that kind of basic mystery about John and, and, the, and the incident at the Café de Pearl. But yeah, it's about cancel culture. And there's a comment at the end of the film from Robin Given, who's a fashion journalist at the Washington Post. And she says this thing about we've got to be able to, as a society, as a culture, be able to be more mature about these issues and to hold to be able to hold two ideas in our head at once. One that somebody can have done something unspeakable, that in some ways they have sinned against all of our taboos, but at the same time there can be a great artist that produce wonderful work which we can appreciate and they should be allowed to continue to do that work and we should be allowed to appreciate the work without confusing that always with their behavior. And that these things don't have to be exclusionary of each other these two ideas and i kind of end up in that place is that there is no it's not black and white we live in a gray world and people make mistakes people need to be forgiven at the same time some people won't be able to forgive john and that's their prerogative 
We'll be right back with more on the BOF podcast. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef-grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off-limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialized experts. Real people who love this stuff with real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. I said there were two things where, where your film has coincided with, with what's happening in the world, and that's anti-Semitism is now a, obviously a, a huge issue because of what's happening in Gaza and Israel at the moment, and the surge of anti-Semitism around the world coincides, I mean, with your film in, in the sense that that was why John was pilloried for his remarks. Yes, and I think it's really interesting, the distributor of the film, was very nervous about that aspect when the event happened in the Middle East in October and subsequently, obviously, people who are, have money at stake in this film became very nervous and it's like, well, was anyone going to want to see this film? But my argument was, was, well, they should want to see it more because this is a film about the origins 
in our minds of anti-Semitism. Where does this prejudice come from? What does it mean if somebody says something anti-Semitic? Does that mean they are anti-Semitic? What is it to be anti-Semitic as opposed to say something that's anti-Semitic? And can education change somebody? And can they be forgiven for saying and doing terrible things? I mean, just the last day or two, we've had the Labour Party tying itself into terrible knots over these these two parliamentary candidates they've got who have made seemingly anti-Semitic comments. The complexity of these issues won't go away. We need to acknowledge the complexity of why people say these things and where it comes from and try and analyse it. I think one of the most telling parts of the film for me is when Sidney Toledano, who at the time was head of Dior and went on to be head of, CEO of LVMH, he says this story about when he was a child and he's, he's Jewish from Morocco originally, his father and he used to go on holiday to south of Spain, where John is from. And his father used to say to him, don't tell anyone you're Jewish. They think Jews have curly tails with an arrow at the end of them. And they think that Jews killed Christ. And of course, John grew up in that milieu. He grew up with those kind of stories. Now he said to me, no, I don't, I don't think that's true. I don't think that's part of why this happened. But I think we all grow up with prejudices around us in the society around us, and we can't help but absorb them. So to analyze those prejudices, to analyze where they come from, I think is really important. I think that Sidney Toledano's words in the film are very powerful and also the rabbi that John engaged with to educate him, to show him the light. That's very important in the film as well. But you do make that point, I think, very interesting when you, when you describe the film as a character portrait and a moral inquiry. But you leave it for people to make their minds up. You don't really point them in a direction. No, I don't, because because as I said, I don't know what's really going on inside somebody's mind. How can any of us really know? I would say that we'd all be best advised not to rush to judgment of people as much as we do. And I think to have a film where you're encouraged to think for yourself a little bit and reach your own conclusions is a, is a healthy thing. It's not something that happens very much these days. Were you surprised by what you found as you got further and further into the into the filming? Was there more than you thought there would be? And did you did you find actually that the moral inquiry touched on very powerful but also quite sort of delicate issues? Yes. I think that the reason I love making documentaries is because you never know where they're gonna go. And if you do know where they're gonna go, it's kinda of boring and probably not gonna be a good film. So there are definitely moments in the film where something really unexpected happens in front of the camera. People say things that are really unexpected, which lead in the film in a new direction. There's a moment where John seems to forget that he did this several times, at least three times. And he is, I think, genuinely blotted that out. I don't think he's pretending not to remember. I think that it's a sign of him creating a story for himself as we all do about things that have happened, particularly traumatic things that have happened. We create a story to get by, but it's not a great look. I actually thought that is one of the most powerful moments in the film. It really is. It really is. What? What just happened? Yeah. And I think to John's credit, you know, he didn't try to deny that. He didn't try to, when he saw the film, he didn't say, oh, you can't put that in, or please don't put that in. He was very... Um, accepting and I really appreciated that and I, it's one of the things that makes me really admire him more that 
you know, I had final cut on this film. This film, everything in this film is what I wanted to be in it. Nobody else, financial or otherwise, was putting pressure on me, which is a rare thing, particularly when you're dealing with something controversial like this. And I really appreciated that with John, that he tried to just let me make the best film I could make. He didn't let his own agenda get in the way of that. He was very respectful of another artist. That's how he saw it, I think, is that you're somebody who makes films and I wouldn't want you interfering in my in my atelier, so I'm not going to interfere with you making the film. You know best. And that's quite rare. But there's other moments in the film which are quite upsetting where you meet one of the people who John insulted the particular night in, at the bar, the Pearl, a man called Philippe Vergetti, um, who's one of the people who reported him to the police and took him to court. And his life has clearly been really affected by this in a way that's quite shocking. And, you know, he's an ordinary guy, clearly quite a vulnerable guy, whose life was turned upside down by this. And his testimony is remarkable because it's very unstraightforward. It's not black and white. He's changed his mind since the testimony he gave in the court as to what he thinks now. So that's not the kind of easy closure that you want. And it became more and more obvious when we made the film that this is not a film that is going to give easy closure, but it is going to raise a lot of questions. And I think, you know, requires or demands a certain amount of um, of independent thinking from the viewer. But I would also say we're talking about all of these moral elements of the film and complex. There's also a, half the film, at least, or more, is to do with John, the fashion genius, you know, and it's a survey of what he did and how incredible it was. I was going to bring that up because I think looking at the film, I thought back to when I went to the McQueen exhibition at the Met in New York, and I was talking to somebody in the queue when I was queuing to get and there were a couple from Honolulu and they knew nothing about fashion, but they'd heard they had to see this show. And I was thinking of an audience who maybe doesn't know John Galliano's work and, and maybe knows about fashion, what they see on the odd front page of a paper when somebody's making a comment about, oh, look at this weirdness, you know, fashion being weird again or whatever. Because there's a sumptuousness to it that is mind-blowing as mind-blowing as it was to be at the shows you get a sense and also the way you've edited it where it's this sort of pell-mell kind of collection of of sumptuous images just coming at you I mean there are people in fashion who will see this film and there are people who aren't in fashion who will see this film who do you think you're ultimately making the film for That's a tricky one. I mean, I suppose I'm making it for people who who aren't in fashion because that's who I was before. I mean, you know, I knew nothing about fashion. I was just interested in him as a person. I was interested in going on the journey to understand and learn a bit about fashion. Something I was probably pretty dismissive of the fashion work before I made this film. And I found I now have an appreciation for an art form I didn't before. So I think I want anybody who's interested, but I think it's aimed at people who aren't necessarily fashion people. I've, I think it's kind of interesting that there's understandably quite a lot of sensitivity from people I've talked to who knew John or were part of his world that worked for him, whatever, nervousness about what the film is and what it's saying. And I don't know how far that extends into the fashion world in general, but I'll be very interested to see how the fashion world responds. I, I think that fashion is not notable for truth-telling. And I think this is a film which is trying to tell the truth. And so do you think that people in fashion might be a little bit um, disturbed by the truth-telling, that maybe it strips the veil away 
you know, the the mystery, the illusion? I think so. I think that fashion is built on fantasy and, and beauty and don't look down, dear, because you might not like what you see. Keep your nose up. But also, in a way, it's very salutary to be reminded of exactly what goes into creating that, the, the heights and the depths of emotion and and passion and misjudgment or whatever, you know, but that, that fashion thrives on mistakes and it always has. I think you're right. I think that's what's, I think that's, it's, you're seeing an artist at work and that involves all sorts of errors and moral failings and passion and moments of genius and, and discovery and inspiration. And I think that's all there. And so it feels alive, I think, when you see John working and you see what he's creating. And I think people who know much more about fashion than I do, and obviously you're one of them, and you're, we should say that you feature in the film, you know, would have said to me that fashion is a very different thing now than it was 20 years ago when John was in his pomp. And it's nice to be reminded of what it was and that maybe fashion is less kind of vivacious, dangerous, inspired now than it was then that a little bit of that blood has been drained from it so i think it might be a nice reminder for people of, of what it meant maybe it still does mean as much to the people who are doing it. i don't know you can say that more than i can well i think another thing it does is it shows people what they missed <laughs> what, what what actually when it was in in the 90s when it really was a much much smaller concern than it is now it became a branch of the entertainment industry in the 90s but there's something so kind of gorgeously hermetic about it um almost the the idea of the court of a king i think comes across in the film quite a lot but there's also a bit of that sort of old hollywood musical trope of let's put the show on right here you know it's the kind of like a bunch of young people We've been given a space and some fabric. It's like, let's do something. Let's do something crazy. Let's shock the oldies. <laughs> There's a bit of that, which is quite fun. So you say you didn't know anything about fashion going into it. Now you've done this film. What do you feel about fashion now? I feel that fashion is totally fascinating and it's both prescriptive and descriptive of society in such an interesting way. And I think like a lot of entertainment forms, it has does seem to have become less personal and more industrial. And that there are individuals who have come into that world like Arno, who have employed people like John Galliano and Alexander McQueen to sort of be the ringmasters of his circus and to create these huge businesses. And maybe that, that sense of the individual creator, the individual artist has maybe not as obvious now as it, as it, as it was then, but still the fashion, tells you so much about society. And I, th I wish that more people I had met along the way and trying to make this film had been like you, Tim, and actually being, being interested in looking at fashion in that way as something that gives you a deeper understanding of in character, but also of society and of what's going on in the wider world. Because I think that would do fashion a lot of good not to be so airless and self-involved. So why do you think now there seems to be a real i remember years ago when you'd, you'd go to a book publisher with an idea about a book about fashion and they'd say oh books about fashion don't sell and now there's 
a tsunami of books about fashion. There, there's a TV series about Cristobal Balenciaga. There's a TV series about Dior and the new look. There's your documentary. There's TV series Kingdom of Dreams. There's, it feels to me that there is a hunger for these stories now. Why? Yes, I think people are realizing that it's this incredible world that hasn't been explored in film. It was very excluding before, but now, of course, people are starting to realize that you know, media exposure in that way can be helpful to their businesses and can be helpful to burnish their images of individual designers, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that people are just catching on to the fact in the wider world that fashion is so potentially psychologically fascinating and can be the um, origin of really great stories and and can tell us a lot about this is the wider society we live in i think i think that's really the basis of it i think also just that in the 1980s a tiny number of people would have said i'm interested in fashion i'm going to go and buy that dress or buy that bag or whatever it was a tiny elite pastime in a way people got the filtered down you know pretty porte version of it whatever you know the high street version of it but these days so many people are having direct you know, interactions through social media with the fashion houses and with the designers and are able to, so many more people from around the world are able to buy into that. This is what Arno did, isn't it? You know, he made you feel like if you bought the perfume or the lipstick that you were buying into the myth of this great house and all that it represented. So I think everyone is now aware of and part of fashion. But I'm sort of rambling on now. No, no, I'm trying I, I, to understand. I'm trying to sort of. I, I, I haven't really thought about this, but it's inter- it is interesting. Well, what do you think fashion means now? Then, I mean these these things that I've been talking about, are, are, uh, that we've been talking about, are kind of historical. That that people looking at, at the past as something that doesn't exist now, in a way. Well, I think I think fashion. You know, I think the reason we're looking at the past is because actually we're realizing that the past was really really interesting. The analog past is always more interesting. I mean, look at what people are making endless films about the 80s and the 90s and the dying days of vinyl and music business or whatever, or the movies that were made then. You know, digitalization in every way has sort of ruined things in some ways. And I think there's a romance about this past where people were misbehaving and being creative geniuses and allowed to crash and burn and didn't have to answer to HR. And I think that's got a, a large part of it. There's a romance to that that's been that's been lost. Whether what fashion represents now, it's more democratic, but because of that, it's less interesting now to me. But I don't. I, I obviously, my knowledge is historic. Yeah. Well, it's, you make a good point though that it was an age of no apologies, and we were living in a kind of ignorant bliss, surrounded by all those those images of extraordinary beauty. I mean, I think people who who were working in the fashion industry in the 90s was spoiled for the choice of you know what what we got to see on a regular basis with a, a calendar of shows in Paris or wherever day after day hour after hour you'd go from a Galliano show to a another show right afterwards just having seen the images that were beyond human conception and i think that does come across in the film that there's an extraordinary um it's skill the craft the depth of thought when John is looking at the dresses in the in the Dior archive. It's a very poignant moment when he's looking at his dresses that he was responsible for. It's almost like he can't believe he did them, which I thought was, 
you know, when you when you're a man in your seventh decade, looking back at things that you did in your third or fourth. Well, I think he sees that a part of himself died that day in at Le Pearl, and that he maybe is looking at this and saying. I don't even remember who that person was. That's a different person. It's not me who I am now. And that's why it's very poignant. You said he told you that I'm not doing the film because I want to be forgiven. I'm doing the film to be a little more understood. Is that the feeling you have at the end of the process, that we do actually understand him a little bit more? I hope so. I mean, I grew to really like John personally a great deal. And he's a very charismatic and likable person. And in some ways, very innocent-seeming. I don't know if that's a strange word to use, but he seems quite innocent in certain ways. I mean, he's also, in some ways, he's far from innocent, but he's, he's also an innocence about him, a naivety. And I think I do understand him more. I don't fully understand him, but none of us can fully understand any anyone else. But I feel like he's a more interesting person for having exposed himself and inquired about himself in, in the film. And I hope people come away with with that. They feel more interested in him and his work than when they went in. I mean, there's no point in making a film about an artist, I think, unless people come to a greater, a deeper understanding of the work through watching it. Because I think beyond the notion of, of cancellation, um, and I think you, you, you quoted Robin Gavan's statement there about there's the art and then there's the artist. The idea of justice is interesting too. I think that it's something else that if I think about your films. I mean, maybe it's a little bit abstract, but you said the rush to judgment in assessing somebody like um, John Galliano, the way the film does, and, and then allowing people to step back and make up their own minds. You do introduce a sort of principle of fairness, I think. Well, I'd like to think that I did. I mean, that's certainly how I feel and how I approach my films and the characters when I've made doc documentaries about individual characters. I'm trying to escape from simple cliches about them, trying to go beyond the obvious, and that involves empathy. I do believe that, you know, in the same way as everyone has a novel in them, everyone has a documentary who made about them. There's really interesting things about almost everyone, and people, if you have the patience to get to that. But I think, yeah, I think that if there's one thing that people could take away from the film, it is things are never that simple. The grey predominates in life and in morality. Yes, um, which can be inspiring and also quite frustrating. I have to ask, uh, what's calling to you next? Well, I'm trying to get a feature film off the ground, which is being very reluctant to lift, get lift off. And I'm, and I'm doing a couple of documentaries, neither of which I can actually talk about at the moment for various, one reason after another. But safe to say none of them take place in the world of an atelier. Do you have a preference? Because your career has been a wonderful integration of documentary and feature films. So. A series of happy accidents, I think. I mean, I, I I like both. Both, I think, both documentary and drama are satisfying in different ways, you know. And you, when you do a documentary, it really is about burrowing into a world you know nothing about. That's fascinating. And getting to understand characters who you didn't before, bringing a deeper understanding of them. Whereas fiction is much more the opposite. You're trying to bring life into something dead, a script on the page. You're trying to make it feel alive, make it feel complex, make it feel like it lives and breathes. And as a documentarian, can you imagine somebody burrowing into your life, making a documentary about you? 
I'm thinking about Errol Morris and the John le Carre documentary, which is a fascinating <laughs> thing. But it is fascinating. Yeah, I, I, having previously said that that you can make a good documentary about almost anyone, I think maybe I'm the exception. I'm not sure if my life is really <laughs> interesting enough. I spend too long too long interested in other people. Now someone's going to try and prove you wrong after that. That's I a hope challenge. not. I hope not. <laughs> Thank you very much, Kevin, and congratulations on the film. Thank you very much, Tim. Lovely to talk to you. Lovely to talk to you. The BOF Podcast is edited and produced by Emma Clark and Eric Bria in the BOF Studio team. You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person, too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere, online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. <laughs> Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash BOF, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash BOF to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash BOF. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef-grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off-limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.